Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. We're pleased to be back again with another edition of Behind the Uniform, but this one is special because this is a father and son edition. And while we certainly will be talking about the decision of one of Michigan's core players to return to Ann Arbor, return to the Wolverines for his final campaign, the broader discussion will be about, this is like another kid. It's like another Let's kid. Go. That's what this is like. <laughs> the Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era, and it's penned by a guy who, I mean, we go back now. We right. go back to before, before Cornelius was a Michigan recruit. He became a Michigan recruit the day yes, we met at that, that Michigan that, camp. It's right. now what seven years ago? Seems yeah, like? it's a long time ago. Long time ago. Seems like yesterday. It does, way. doesn't yeah. it? Talking about Claude Johnson and the son Cornelius Johnson, who you all know, fellas. Hey. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having us. This is amazing. Yeah, really. man. Um, it's it's a little bit emotional, hey. right, to see the journey. Right. Because to be there from the beginning, I know how hard he had to grind in order to get the, the national attention coming from Connecticut. Like you said at yeah. the time, people weren't coming to Connecticut to really check for players. Yeah. So you had to kind of take him to the coaches so they could see him, right? Yeah. And actually, people don't realize you were the very first person to mention Cornelius Johnson on air. Like, <laughs> we, like we still have the audio of that because that was a milestone for real. Yeah. You know, Cornelius Johnson from Greenwich, Connecticut. You yeah, know? Man. yeah, yeah. That was a special moment. Yeah. Like low key, you can't you can't sleep on that. It's not minimize it at all. Yeah. And so, so thank you for that. Hey, no, man. It was it was my because the thing is like we were we were standing on the sideline. Like people don't realize we were standing on the sideline. And, and there's this guy standing next to me with the camera, you know, so I was like, oh, are you, are you a dad also? You know, like, are you, are you, like, trying to, you know, watch your son? Which one's your son? Because that's how football right, is, you know. Right. And then you were like, well, no, I, I, I do this thing so low-key about it, so humble. It's like, turns out you have this whole thing going on, you know. It's, like, really amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was cool. So, hey, I mean, you've come a long way. I mean, it's now proven player, team leader. NFL prospect making the decision to to come back that's a whole lot of of a journey in like four or five years time I mean we say it seems like just yesterday does it seem like just yesterday for you it's a good question I'd say yes and no but it like you said a proven player I wouldn't say that I mean I never never feel like I want to feel like I arrived or somehow improving I got so much more to prove in my mind which is part of the reason why I came back for another year um for this season for 2023 uh, and I'm ready to attack this season with my teammates and like you said I mean it feels like yesterday but at the same time like we've been through so much and there's also a lot more to go through and mm-hmm. like it's just crazy to see how it's all played out yeah. <laughs> so I, I knew you as Claude the dad I mean one son already and by the time you bring Cornelius around you had kind of been through the process um, so Cornelius Goes through it, goes to Michigan. Carnegie coming up. Where's Carnegie going? So he just committed to play basketball. He's a point guard at the United States Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So just, obviously, man, just achievement yeah. up and down. And my oldest, Cassius, he uh, was a, a cornerback at University of San Diego, mm-hmm. which was Coach Harbaugh's first, first spot. And uh, he won four conference championships there. Um, he's now finished, uh, and he's got a marketing degree, so he's actually helping with, with the cause, with the right. Black Fives Foundation. Right, so I, I prefaced it that way, <laughs> saying I knew you as, I got to know you as the dad, yeah. right? But there's much more, to, that's the most important distinction that's and designation and duty, right? Yes, sir. But there's a whole lot more to Claude Johnson, so kind of give us, give the people your background, and then take us on your journey to this, to Black Fives. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so my background is I was in, I was in corporate America for, for many years, 20-plus years. I, I started at IBM, then I was at American Express, and 
and then I went to uh, work at the NBA. And it was while I was at the NBA that I got to learn about licensing because I was in charge of, uh, I was the director of international licensing for the, for the league, for the consumer product section. And then from there I went to Nike and uh, learned more about like merchandising and product and all the things that go into that. While I was at the NBA, um, I learned, you know, that this was in 1996 when they celebrated what they called their 50th anniversary at the time. And uh, I, I found this book um, by Arthur Ashe uh, called A Hard Road to Glory, which with a tennis legend, and he was talking about these earlier African-American teams. Um, his book is The Journey of the African-American Athletes since the 1600s. 1600s and, is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> right, that they were athletes, you know, but mostly boxers, you know, but, uh, and, and horse racing. Um, but then the NBA published a book called the, the, Encyclo the NBA Encyclopedia of Basketball, which was 800 pages. And only three of those pages, Sam, were devoted to these earlier all-black teams. So I thought, well, how is that possible? And one of those teams was called the Smart Set Athletic Club of Brooklyn, which was an all-black social and athletic club that was formed in 1904. And I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I thought, you know, I'm smart, I'm athletic, I live in Brooklyn, so this, this was almost like a club that would have been meant for somebody like me, Smart Set Athletic Club. And, uh, and I started this journey of saying, you know, ma imagine if there was a t-shirt or something with that name on it, you know, because I was in licensing, so I always saw the value of that. Fast, fast forward, you know, I started to, whenever I came across this history, nobody knew anything about it. So I, I had to just go on my own into the library, into the you know, Hall of Fame, didn't know anything about it. Um, like, nobody knew anything. Mm -hmm. And so it, I, I learned, I even had to teach myself how to research, right? So, so fast forward, I'm, the, I'm a self-taught historian, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, stay-at-home dad for a while with the worldwide sneaker deal now, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, I don't think anybody's ever done that before. So I kind of make fun of it like that. But, <laughs> But eventually led to, you know, this epic book, which um, over the years, at that time, I started writing, but it was really um, a bunch of words, mm -hmm. you know. So you can write about, on this date, this happened, and then the following year, th this team won by this many points, and, but it's not a story. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it took me a lo long time to learn how to get my words into a story. And then I had to overcome some confidence issues because, you know, I got straight D's in English in, in middle school, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, thanks to Mr. Simon, <laughs> you know, rest in peace. But, um, but that was an influence to me as well. And so, you know, I, I just knew I could do it eventually. And so, um, uh, you know, it, the story of how I got a literary agent is magical. And then that led to a deal with, with Abrams Press, which is a major publisher. They outbid HarperCollins for the story rights by then, you know. So uh, this came out last year, and I'm really pleased with it. A lot of people are, um, you know, s super excited about what's in it because I was trying to make it like the mic drop mm -hmm. of this history. Like, that's basically what, it, what it's trying to be. Yeah, so much wrapped up in this book to, to me the symbolism obviously the, there's a story of you know the the black influence on basketball black participation in basketball and how far it goes back there's a broader narrative about how history is passed along and why certain history is forgotten right, right. so one of my initial questions is we hear so much about the negro leagues i know that that's not a complete history it's not like we have all the stats that and that all of that is chronicled, as detailed as regular baseball history, but we still have a greater knowledge of that. Why do we have knowledge of the Negro Leagues and not necessarily of the Black Fives? Well, I go into that a little bit, Sam, because, you know, the book starts off uh, focusing on this one pioneer named Will Anthony Madden. He's on the cover with wearing the carnation. And um, he's, he was born into uh, abject poverty in a section of New York City called Little Africa, which is now Greenwich Village. And, um, you know, from that period, uh, he eventually became the, the king of black basketball during the 1910s. And then he, when he died in the 1970s, 
I discovered he was buried in an unmarked grave. So it, it struck me, right, as like, how could you be the king of black basketball in the headlines nationally, but yet now you, you're buried in an unmarked grave? And I, I kind of said, that's the same as this whole history, mm -hmm. which made headlines, is buried in an unmarked grave, right? So, so I felt like it was my job to unbury this history. And, um, and not only that, but who's speaking up for this man who's voiceless, you know, in, a, in an unmarked grave someplace, right? And it, it struck a chord in me in terms of, because I, I really um, have empathy for giving voice to the voiceless, mm -hmm. right, and at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so all these pioneers, you know, and I learned that from my grandmother and her siblings and all the things they went through and sharecropping and Louisiana and all that stuff, you know, like, who's talking about them, Yeah. right? Yeah. Now, lately, you know, more of that has come out, right, with warmth of other suns and, and so on, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but the reason why it kind of got forgotten, it's not really intentional. It was just that when the NBA was formed uh, in 1949, and I, I go into that, um, you know, they went off on their own. There was no reason to look back for them because they, they didn't really have an overlapping history. Uh, the HBCUs by then had conferences, and they took off and did their thing. The Globetrotters, who were part of this story, went off and did their thing to more comedy and, mm -hmm. and, and such. And so, um, and in the Negro Leagues, there was always the majors and the Negroes, they were playing side, you know, parallel, side by side for, for years, like mm -hmm. generations. So, but there was no league like that, per se, mm. for, the, for, for basketball. I mean, until the 19, late 1930s. Um, so... I, I go into that, you know, some of what happened and the details of, of, of why, um, you know. So it was just interesting to me, and I just wanted to just keep going and going and going. So it's it's really like uh, going down a rabbit hole, but then going down the wormhole at the end of the rabbit hole. That's yeah. how deep it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I listen to, you know, the, the passion. I listen to the detail, and I listen to an example of how history has been, is, is not just in, in black culture, but in, in most cultures is passed this way. Right. If you're fortunate enough to have history books chronicle it in parallel, that's great. It reinforces the, the lessons, right? But too often that's not the case with, with black history. So this, this fills the void yeah. for, for kids, right? right? I mean, you hear from your, you talk about your grandmother, your grandfather, your grandparents, your parents, kind of telling you history. So I, I, I preface this that way. I say, how much of your motivation was to give your boys a sense of history? Oh, no yeah. doubt. I you mean, know, I mean, I, and I'm curious if, yeah. if you kind of felt that as he was writing it. It's sort of funny because there's like a lot of stories I learned just through the process of it. I mean, I picked up the book and I've looked at parts of it and even other stuff that uh, my dad decides to pick up and do. I sort of just learned in the background because we talk about it too. It's not just like, you know, he's just doing the book and forcing us to read it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's something that we're actually interested in because, like, I grew up playing basketball, lacrosse, football, like different sports, ran track. And, you know, basketball is like really my, at this point, it's really like my second favorite sport. I always watch, like, the NBA, keeping up with scores and stuff. So I'm definitely in the loop there. And then, I mean, obviously, Carnegie's playing and stuff. So. Like, and then the history of it, just to see where it takes everybody, you know, he's gone to do, you know, see all these great different different types of people throughout the country. And it's something that really inspires me because it just shows you, like, you just put your mind to it. Like, you can really just make the world your own. And then um, learning learn about all the other history is also really uh, significant to me. And um, I'm excited for the book talk tonight at the uh, bookstore up on campus in downtown. Just, you know, see people's reactions and everyone else in town trying to get some some of the history as well. Yeah, you know, you you get, by by bringing it to life, I think you you get a broader appreciation for the different contributions to, to history, right? I, I Sometimes I feel like a lot of the misunderstanding is because people don't have a sense of history, whether mm -hmm. whether it's celebrations on the, on the field. You think about that, how forever, forever that was seen as a sign of sport, poor sportsmanship, right? 
where I come from, that that is sportsmanship. Yeah. That's right. part of gamesmanship. Then I watch you score a touchdown. Yeah. Uh, now you mean you guys have a, a scripted <laughs> celebration, and that's accepted. You know, like 30 years ago, you're getting a flag for that. So you, you can kind of see an acceptance of, well, you know, there are other influences on the sport. There are other experiences in the sport that they're incorporate that are being incorporated now that I think if you had a greater sense of history, that that would be an easier path to follow than it has been to this point. Yeah, no doubt. And what, what Cornelius is saying, you know, it, it's, it's heartfelt because, because, you know, they've been around, like I've been doing this since really before they were born and then like as they were born. So sometimes I had to write this, you know, two minutes at a time because it was, because, you know, he's two years old, four years old, you got to <laughs> do this, that, you know. And so, um, you know, juggling that has been like really amazing for, for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it or trade it for anything because you know they were wearing cat, they were wearing black fives caps when they were you know yeah. two years old. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he's he's been nil since uh, you know since age two. That's another thing too. Like, <laughs> I mean now there literally is like the name image likeness thing, but like it's funny because it's almost like been like that for, for my whole life. And like my some of my favorite parts are like get you some shoes, uh, some nice like. Hats, shirts, and then also like the social media aspect of it too. And I don't know, maybe one day like they have to make like a little documentary or something yeah. like that with a film to go along with it. I mean, there are, there already is some stuff out there, but yeah, uh, it's just I'm excited to see it keep growing. You you've come up in Michigan in an era where athlete activism is more common. I mean, yeah. there was a generation there where that that was seen as like you know don't don't rock the boat, so to speak. You know, just stay in the lane, yeah. so to speak. But you guys in this generation have kind of mm -hmm. kicked that to the curb. And if there's something that needs to be said, mm -hmm. you say it. And, and I'm curious, as, as you, as your teammates got involved in that, was that just organic? Or did you draw some inspiration for, from history as you guys started to do different things, as you started to stand up for different things? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, it's definitely a draw from history. Um, it's for, like, there's different time periods because, you know, at this time period, especially while we're here on campus, like, you got, you got a lot of influence, got a lot of, a lot of eyeballs on you, um, watching your every move, trying to um, maybe even look up to you, set a good example for the younger kids who, like, for example, will come up to you after pictures and autographs, but at the same time, those are the same kids who like will be your age one day, and like they'll always remember that type of stuff. And I always try to keep that in my mind mm -hmm. because like uh, that little stuff will go a long way. And then even here on campus, I've done uh, some stuff in terms of like social activism throughout, even back since like the pandemic, um, during around that time in 2020 when there was some stuff going on, and even just getting out and voting, mm -hmm. uh, telling each other, you know, grab, grab a buddy along, bring a friend. And then nowadays also, too, with what you said, the social media aspect of it, too, uh, it creates a whole new, like, platform to put your uh, message out there and, like, really brand yourself. So that's probably uh, another thing of history, too, that yeah. makes it better. Because, like, like, the 90s and 80s might not have been as easy to, like, specifically say what you want. Um, without social media unless you do it like in a press yeah. conference. You know what I mean? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because yeah. you, had, you had examples. Uh, you know, I can look at the, at the two eras. I can look at, at uh, Colin Kaepernick and immediately after Colin Kaepernick and then I can look at Chris Jackson or Mahmoud yes. Abdul-Aruf. Yes. They're doing a documentary. They're doing him. a documentary yeah. on him now yeah. where he started to, as he changed, as he made his transition to Islam, his protest was actually about the symbolism of the of the fight, different from Colin Kaepernick, who was, his was a social justice and police brutality stand. It yes. wasn't necessarily against the flag or the symbolism of the flag, but for Chris Jackson, aka Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, it was, and the the reaction to it was visceral. It was much the same as it was for Colin Kaepernick, but worse, right? Where he yes. was completely ostracized from the league. And there was really no other players to have his back right. at that time. Right. Right. No one to really the give... The union was not really right. stepping up like that. No one to give context to his protest to, to talk about, you know, being black and being American is kind of a dichotomy. 
yes. often where you can feel you can feel pride in the flag and what it stands for. You can also recognize that the flag, the Star Spangled Banner, that there are there are elements of racism that are ingrained, even if you don't celebrate that, even if you don't absorb that into your thought process, it is part of the origin. There are extra people don't know there are extra verses to the Star Spangled yes. Banner. There's a yes. you know, I say this all the time and I make sure that I get the get the uh the passage right where it says uh, their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge could slay could save the hiring enslaved from the terror or flight or the gloom of the grave. That is in the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, that's and crazy. So, the beginning or the end? Yeah, that's like at the end. They yeah, just cut it out. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, but that's history that is shared by my grandmother and your grandmother and you're passed down to your kids. So when 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 black kids show up and they have a kind of a dual view of it, people don't understand because they don't even know that there are extra verses to the Star Spangled Banner. Right. Right. So that's where that's where I feel like history. Yeah. You know, literature, teaching people, give them the full history <laughs> is so important. It is. And you know what's interesting? I'm just gonna add to what you just said, right? So there's also the black national anthem. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that the third verse of the black national anthem really is what this is all about. It's, it, talks about it talks about how our forefathers would have sighed at the progress we made, how far we got today, mm-hmm. you know, despite the, the, the rocky road, you know, and, and, and that, um, that, that verse specifically has inspired me um, and, the, you know, the, the people who wrote that, uh, Jay Rosamond Johnson um, and his brother, you know, they, around 1900, that helped inspire some of the earlier African-American pioneers because back then, you know, you were fighting for all kinds of, uh, through all kinds of challenges. Um, basketball actually got started in a black community because at the time there was um, this tremendous overcrowding and congestion of cities because so many people were escaping the South. Mm-hmm. So many black people were migrating away from the South from the oppression and the treatment they, they were receiving, Sam. And when they came up north, oftentimes they had bad facilities with no windows and no ventilation. And so the mortality rate from tuberculosis and pneumonia was like 25%, which means like one in four was going to be gone next year, mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, especially black men. And so black community leaders thought, and, and medical people thought that it was because they weren't exercising their lungs enough. They didn't realize how contagious these diseases were. Mm-hmm. And so one, one um, they looked around and they thought, okay, well, here's the YMCA, and they're talking about physical culture and about uh, muscular Christianity, which were these movements in the, in the white communities, to, you know, like in, in response to the Industrial Revolution and um, making sure that people didn't... Um, suffer from moral decay, you know, mm-hmm. like in the winter months. And that's why James Naismith was asked to invent this game so that there was something to do during the winter, mm-hmm. right? And then black leaders were like, okay, well, basketball, that's something that we could adapt and uh, embrace as, as communities. So at first, basketball was actually a wellness tool. Mm-hmm. It, and that's, that's why it started out as amateur and and uh, you know, went into all this, and there was a fight between the people that wanted it to be strictly amateur, because um, that's what the, the the white authorities of the game were were after, because it's the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, right? So mind, body, spirit. How could you play this for money? It's for you know wellness and for your spirituality. Um, there was a fight between the amateur forces and the and the professional forces. So I talk about that because. You know, it slept on, like, we didn't just always have professional basketball. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a, a hard-fought battle, especially in the black community. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, so the title of the book, again, is The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Learn your history. This is a valuable tool, so valuable that I think it should be required reading in the NBA, and I wonder what their reception to this has been like. Well, Sam, so people don't realize that the NBA is really three entities. It's the league office, then it's the union, and then it's the teams. And so the teams have been very interested, not every team, but that's just because there's only one of me. So mm -hmm. every Black History Month, I'm asked to go here or there. There's only, <laughs> right, yeah. So we're trying to scale that. And then uh, the, the league office, you know, we're a nonprofit, right? So the Black Fives Foundation is a 501c3 public charity. Our mission is to research, preserve, showcase, teach, and honor the pre-NBA history of African Americans in basketball. So our first grant, as a nonprofit was from the NBA Players Union Foundation, right, under Cherie Dean. And so I'm very thankful and appreciative still to this day because they, they helped us survive and thrive and grow at a time that was very difficult for us because we were starting off. So, but the league office, that's the holdout. We've been pitching them for 20 years and um, just with no success. They know all about us. Um, I'm friends with lots of people there because I used to work there. Uh, and uh, just no, no success. So I think that, you know, sometimes you have to be, it has to be the right timing and other things that are factors. And so, um, you know, I, our whole thing in our, in our, at home, we have signs all around the house. It's a stoppable question mark or <laughs> unstoppable <laughs> question mark, right? Mm -hmm. Just put that up everywhere uh -huh. on the mirror. And so you just got to keep going because we're not really doing this for the NBA or for, we're yeah. doing it for the players. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, whether the league office is interested or not, you know, this history, like history doesn't change. Only what we do with it changes. Mm -hmm. So, like, we have our slogan. This is our, um, you probably saw this on my, on my ha head. Yeah, I got to get one. It, yeah, I got to get you <laughs> one. Um, you know, make history now uh, is a slogan for, for the foundation. And it's two meanings, right? So one meaning is make this history relevant. Like, let it keep expanding and growing and through the book and through other efforts that we have, partnerships that we have. Um, but the other one is also that you can't make history someday. You can only make history by the things you do right now that affect the overall trajectory. Just like my grandfather, you know, his great-grandfather, William Lucius Johnson, decided to leave Louisiana because there was a surge of lynching there in the late 1910s. And then he went to the south side of Chicago with his wife. Never had learned how to read or write was a Pullman porter for his whole career. I never met him. Mm -hmm. um, but then one of his sons, who was my dad, eventually became a college professor and uh, got his PhD on the GI Bill because he served in the military. And then each of his kids, my siblings, have their college degree. And all of my kids are either have their college degree, which Cornelius just recently went through his commencement, got his degree, or are about to. And that's something that my great-grandfather, my grandfather would have never imagined. Um, and he told my dad, you know, you know, watch out for them educations because they'll bust your head wide open. And so that's like the, that's like the legend in our, mm -hmm. in our, we tell it because, because that also has two meanings, right? Mm -hmm. it, it bust your head wide open, mm -hmm. Sam, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm, it does. Right? And so this book is meant to bust your head wide open. If you're a basketball fan or if you're not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your mind because it's going to be like, wait, what? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's, that's what this is all about. It's, it's, uh, and, and, you know, we talk about it a lot in terms of just sports, because Make History Now has this direct application. We're, just before we got here, I was talking about uh, that first touchdown against Ohio State. Like people remember, you know, J.J. dropped back and kind of off his back foot, he slung it to the left sideline and Cornelius caught the ball, but 
But the linebacker, the safety came over and, and, and tried to s swipe his legs out. So he tripped him. And most people, a lot of people would have just fallen. Because if you watch that carefully, like Cornelius is trying to keep his balance, right? Mm -hmm. And then that keeping your balance goes directly back to Coach Herbert. Because they have this specific drill that they do, this specific uh, uh, conditioning exercise. But it wasn't like Coach Herbert said, you know, the night before the Ohio State game, hey, let's do this exercise to, you know, prepare for in case you get tripped. Mm -hmm. That happened like 36 yeah. months before that, <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? So uh -huh. you, you could tell, tell, yeah. tell them. No, I mean, you're just talking about, like, our strength coach and how, like, every day we do specific stuff, and then you never know. It could be the biggest moment of the season where everything's on the line against, like, a tight game. And then, you know, that little detail of precision could be an inch, ends up mattering. I mean, say, say you get tackled, say something happens, you know, ball doesn't go the right way, and then that completely alters the game. And then that's how you win and lose games. Just could be off sloppiness. And then that's why, like, those attention to details is what, like, we really focus on a lot in the weight room. And then that, that applies to everything, though, because, like, uh, if you're going to pull up late to class or skip class, but then, like, try and be fully locked in and practice, like, you can do that and get away with it, but, like, it's really everything in life that sort of, like, adds up to that. You try, try and be always showing up, stay off those lists, and just, like, really lock into the little details because, like, that, that ends up mattering in the long run. Like, the stuff we do now, like, it's literally February, but, like, the championship games aren't being played till the end of the season, mm -hmm. which, which could be, like, months down the line. The end of t at the end of 2023, we'll look back at what we did in January, February, March, and all that stuff right now. Like you said, make history right now. Like, literally right now, it's February, and what we're doing right now is going to well, end up paying off. You made some history <laughs> against Ohio State, man. Yeah. You, you brought it up, so I got I got to go in. Yeah. See, uh, attention to detail. One of the details I noticed on that first touchdown, I'm trying to figure out what their corner was looking. Like, he's looking, not he's pressing yeah. you. But he's not looking at you. Nah. He's looking in the back. I don't know if he thought JJ wasn't wasn't gonna bail and buy time, and just yeah. throw it to him, and he's gonna try to jump it or what. But I'm trying to figure out what was he doing, what was he thinking in that moment. JJ buys time. You make talk me through the play from your perspective. All right. So I I, I don't know. I actually haven't looked at the film uh, from before the play. Either way. It was a huddle call, so I run into the huddle and like it's third down. So like it's third down in Columbus, like late November. I'm like, all right. <laughs> like I'm looking around, like all right. So like I jump in the huddle, I'm like, all right, let's go. What we got? And then um, the play, like the play call was actually like supposed to be a different different concept where the two outside guys had like sort of out routes. But the whole week we we're talking about in practice that. Um, you know, if they, we saw them, like, pressed up like that, we were going to, you know, sort of convert to a look. Uh, once we got to the line, J.J. actually looked over me, looked right in my eyes, and we ended up giving the signals to each other. And we knew that from practicing the whole week. And then it was weird because, like you said earlier, he bailed out. I thought it was press coverage, but he ended up bailing. But it was also cover zero. So, like... <laughs> You can't press bail and cover zero. Like, that doesn't really make any sense. But maybe it's something they've been working on, or maybe he had a mental error. But we ended up taking advantage of it, and we stuck on the same route, and he hit me right there on um, perfect timing, and then I was able to turn around down the sideline like we talked about. Yeah, and see, he had to turn around to try yeah. to come get you. Yeah. Right? And so that, I mean, that detail, the fact that he had to turn around to come get you allowed you to, to keep your balance and make the play. Yeah. In the, in the long run. Completely. So it was definitely some detail there. So what about this? I mean, that wasn't your only. Yeah, I was your just only big like, play. You're getting warmed up. Yeah, the second <laughs> one, I mean, that was like another thing, too, because we got the perfect look that we wanted where, like, I originally came to the line thinking I was going to run the route off the corner, but he ended up taking the uh, take, run to the flats, taking the flat route, and I ran the route off the safety who wasn't in, in good position. So, like, it worked out perfectly um, for us in that position. And then I, I was able to get so in his blind spot. What were they doing on that? I mean, it was it cover two? It was a cover two. It was a cover two where, like, if I, if I um, won inside, like, the middle of the field was wide open. So that's how cover two is because the two safeties are there. 
and that there's no one in the middle of the field. So I but was running off that he left the whole half field? Yeah, it was wide open. So I knew if I could manipulate him, then um, it was going to be an open look. And, like, that's just the type of stuff we're looking for. You never know how it's exactly going to play out in the game, though. So, like, really anything can happen because you can practice it a certain way the whole week, but then you never know once the live bullets are flying, you got to find work. <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious, man. <laughs> You're in a game like that. And I know there has to be some nerves. We had Trevor Keegan sitting up, up here last week, and he, was, he said he was, like, really nervous heading into the game. Like, I don't yeah. know, I don't know, I don't yeah. know. Other guys were like, I knew we were going to get these guys. Yeah. There's a moment in the game, though, where I think all you guys have to feel, we got these guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, we got these dudes. <laughs> what was that yeah. point? It was, like, the whole game going through. Uh, I'm trying to think. It's not something really you feel like leading up to it, because leading up to it, you're just thinking, all right, like this is gonna be war. Like you got to battle. Like anything happens, like whatever, put it all on the line for the team. And then throughout the actual gameplay, I was just really just locked in on our defense and us holding them. And I knew like if we can get these stops and get off the field, then like it's gonna be over. And like especially after some of the second half, long touchdown runs, like. I was like, okay, yeah, at this point it's over with. But I wasn't, I wasn't the one sitting there thinking it's over. I wasn't like, because that was a good game. Like, like the score might not have like exactly showed it, but that was a tight game. Yeah. Um, and if a couple things go go a different way, they easily got us. That's the thing about those type of games and championships, especially. Like, you know, you could end up pulling away late, but it's those, it's that battle that. Um, when it's real tight in, like, the first half, going in the second half, where, like, it mattered the most. And, like, that's where we ended up pulling away. That's when I knew it was over. So there yeah. are multiple classes that have come through here in the 2000s that never beat Ohio State. Never, yeah. Don't have a Big Ten championship. You did it twice. Yeah. Or you were part of teams that did mm-hmm. it twice. But you decided to come back. Mm-hmm. Why? That's just on a personal, more personal level. Like, I was trying to make the best decision for myself. Um and that's another requirement. I mean, it's going to be another season, and we got the same goals. Um, first of all, we got to keep Paul Bunyan. Second of all, we got those guys from down south coming to our building, so we got to handle that. And then ultimately going back to Indianapolis and then uh, getting to Houston, Houston um, in early January. Those are the four goals uh, as a team. And then because we still haven't done accomplished all four of those yet. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. But uh, yeah, like those, like you said. I mean, not everyone, not everyone can win that game. But it's it's so like it's so it's much closer than you think. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the difference between like a twelve and 0, 13 and zero team and a team that went maybe eight and five, nine and three, nine and four. Like those games can go. Start, like we'd be tied up against Indiana at halftime. They end up going like six and six. It's not like a big difference if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, like yeah. It, can, it can go either way based off a couple of things, and it's just those little details that matter. Like we yeah. had a d- difference in changing the game. Um, but yeah, like I mean, to get back to your original question of coming back, um, I feel like we got a good group of guys coming back, and we're just reloading the squad, trying to get everyone, all the new guys coming in. Everyone fresh and uh, ready for this long run. I only got a couple more for you because yeah. you guys got to get out. You got an event to, to get to. I, yeah. I'm curious from a leadership perspective. It, it seems while you have captains, it seems that it seems like leadership on this team right now is abundant. Like it, 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 the leadership goes beyond the captains. And the reason why I bring that up is you guys lost two captains in season. Mm-hmm. That you know we did. how much they were around the team kind of varied as you got later in the year, and yet you guys didn't miss a beat. Yeah. And so why, I mean, have you talked about that? Why was that? How yeah. were you guys able to do that? I mean, going to the season, you have your captains, but then, you know, as it goes along, it's sort of like you guys just show up and, like, we hold everyone to the same standard because, like, you can be a captain or you can be some guy who's maybe hasn't had as much playing time, but we can rely on them just as much as we do a captain in certain situ- scenarios or situations, excuse me. But uh, either way, it's the same amount. Like, there's so many examples throughout the season where, like, a guy maybe who hasn't played much, uh, we ended up counting on him on, like, a fourth down or, like, a huge play on defense or special teams. Yeah, yeah for <laughs> example, like that, or, like, or a big play on defense, uh, relying on them to make a big stop on special teams or block for 
you know, or even scout assignments. Team. Yeah, scout teams. Scout teams are essential. So, like, losing captains, that's going to happen. You're going to lose leaders. You know, you're going to have guys not be available to play when you need them. But it's about those guys who are available. And when you do get that shot, just, like, attack it. That's, like, really what we do. Just when did attack you, it. When did you as a player, look, you, yeah. you follow whoever the leader, whoever the, I'm talking about, as, yeah. a, as a quarterback. You follow whoever it is. For sure. Got to be quarterback. But when did, when did it sort of click for you that, man, this dude is different. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this dude is that that guy, the guy who went down in Columbus and and won in Columbus yeah. for the first time in yeah. 20 years. When did you, it click for you that he was that guy? Like, you say that guy, but to me, it's like he's never really switched up, you know? Like, J.J. McCarthy's always been, like, I don't want to say he's, like, always been the same because, obviously, you know, he develops, gets uh, faster, stronger, improves. But, like, it's not like he's switching up. It's like now that everyone in the whole media gets to see that, it's, like, beautiful because he can showcase in front of everybody. And, like, it was after, it was after those – probably those September games when we just – Sort of uh, Coach Harbaugh decided to go with the, um, go with JJ starting, and then we just all jumped behind him and then kept rolling. So, and it so just man, leads to like more confidence in the offensive room. Yeah. So so now you know there was a there was a, a maturation process for the offense where you you guys didn't attack down the field as much as you did at the end yeah. of the season, as much as you did versus Ohio State or even in the loss in the playoff game. Yeah. You guys were killing them down the football field. It feels like that's a that's something that can carry over yeah. into next season where it won't be the build up. It'll just be picking up where you left off. Is that is that yeah. fair to say? Is that a reasonable yeah. expectation to have? I mean, definitely want to pick up where you left off. I mean, if that's that's a good spot to pick up, I um, gotta always strive for more and never get complacent in that. But yeah, if that's something we can pick up on and keep that going throughout spring ball, keep that going throughout camp come out first game and just don't hold back like it's got to be early and often all right toughest question i'm going to ask you is we we know what to expect from a lot of guys that are returning got a ton of guys returning right but i mean there are some guys who've been playing in in the wings whether they're defensive guys or offensive guys that look like they're ready to break out it could be some youngsters some early enrollees that have maybe impressed you but as you've been going through workouts any any of the youngsters kind of flash to you like man that dude mm, he looks like he looks like he's gonna be impressive even if it's not next year like anyone jumping out to you at this early stage not yet let's get let's first get into spring ball and uh in like camp because at this point we've just only been doing like winter workouts and lifting so like we haven't done much throwing on the side you can't really you can't really judge a man based off what he's doing in, in, in february in, in shorts and in t-shirts so i don't want to speak too early on that but so tell me this, as a receiver, we were talking to Trevor Keegan. He said, hey, man, I think Frederick Moore is one of the fastest guys on the team already. Ooh. He said, man, he, he jogs 19 miles an hour. Jeez. Is that accurate to say? Jogging 19? <laughs> That's what he said. We, I mean, that might have happened. We had, some, uh, let's see, the fastest guy on those, because we've been timing like the miles per hour. Amarion Walker hit like 20 miles an hour when we were, even, when we were only doing like a 10-yard, 5-yard rep, and everyone was like looking at the board like, how is that even possible? <laughs> So we went in and, ch- and double-checked to see if, like, his GPS was bugged. But I think, I think nah, he's just that fast. He's just fast. <laughs> I hear that, man. Yeah. Well, fellas, I could keep you all day, and I won't. Um, it has been a real pleasure. I want to spotlight the book again, The Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era. I'm going to be taking a vacation this summer. Nice. Going to have some some time where I can have just the solitude. I got boys and they're all over the place, but there's going to be some time where they can be off doing their thing. This is going to be my thing in that time. So if people are interested in purchasing the book, how and where can they get it? Well, the quickest way, I mean, you can, it's everywhere. So it's, it's on Amazon. Um, if you want to support your local bookstore, go to bookshop.org. And then if you want to look at it on our website, uh, then we've got, uh, if you follow thatnewbook.com, thatnewbook.com, which is um, something that I, uh, that's a domain that I reserved 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, 
You gotta have the you vision. Gotta, you gotta have the vision, man. You gotta manifest it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be thinking ahead. So also the gear. What about the gear? The gear is also available on on those sites. So blackfives.org uh, that's our website We're, uh, our handle is blackfives if you're on IG or Twitter or wherever and um, you know there's plenty of stories we have partnerships with Puma with the Big East Conference now uh, with lids you can get these uh, hats fitted um, snapbacks uh, dad caps at lids uh, in almost every lids or on, on, on their website as well as on our website and you know there's there's a there's just a lot in this book. There's a lot of history, a lot of storytelling, and then it just keeps going. You know, this is really just the beginning, uh, and so we're real pleased to have those partners. One quick thing I'll share with you is that, you know, I just, two, within the past two weeks, have given a presentation on the Black Fives history to every single basketball player, men's and women's, in the Big East Conference wow. through uh, that partnership with them. So that's really important because those are the future thinkers and um, NBA players, WNBA players who are very influential. And so knowing about this in advance, this is why, you know, just uh, it's a marathon, right? Not a sprint. And it's what you do today that, that makes the difference. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with one last uh, story. I don't know if we have time for this, but so these teams, they, they first started out as amateur. A hundred people would come to the game. Then the next year, 200. And a couple of years later, they started charging for admission all of a sudden there's 3,000 people and and Will Anthony Madden who's on the cover he formed a professional team and he went out and um, took this road trip to Chicago which was the longest road trip that a, ba a black basketball team had taken at that time in, in, in history and on the way back he stopped in eight cities and that was that inspired the whole concept of barnstorming like taking your team out on the road and just playing so the by the time you get to the New York Wrens which uh, were founded 100 years ago this year, so we're celebrating wow. them all year. It's an AAU squad, the New York yeah, Rens. Yeah. Well, they, they na they're named after the actual New York Rens, mm -hmm. um, which, is, which was the New York Renaissance team that was formed in 1923. Wow. It was the first uh, all-black, black-owned, fully professional basketball team in history. Wow. And they would play 150 games a year. A season. Uh, so no load management for them, huh? And so, no, and so they, <laughs> no, they, because they were out, because this was like a living, right. but it was also, there were other reasons for doing that, for the, uh, for the empowerment and the, the advancement of the race at the time, mm -hmm. right? So this was during the New York, during the Harlem Renaissance period when they, when they got started. And what they would do is, uh, they won from 1923 when they were formed to 1949 when they dissolved. 85% of their games playing 150 games a season, right? And so we've spent the last 10 or so years um, advocating for their proper recognition in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So we've actually been helpful in getting about 10 or 11 or 12 of these early black pioneers enshrined. So that's really gratifying. But I'll tell you that um, we have to ask, how come an all-black team was able to go to an all-white state and and city like Oshkosh, Wisconsin, during uh, Jim Crow, during the Great Depression, beat that local team, leave safely, and get invited back again and again and again. And it's, it's because they were like a, a mobile economic stimulus, right? So they would come to town, and people would come from miles around. They didn't have movies and stuff, uh, social media. So you know, the merchants, the bars, the hotels, the stores, the restaurants would all make money, and then the, the venue itself would make money, and they would split the gate receipts. Well, and there was this one team uh, called the, the um, New York Harlemites that was, that was based out of St. Louis, and they went to uh, Montana on a road trip um, in 1937, and almost as they got closer to where they were trying to get to, they ran into a blizzard. And this blizzard, uh, that all week long, was like minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So their car broke down, and they had to walk three miles before a sheep herder finally rescued them. And they had to be hospitalized and treated for frostbite. Don't you know that they kept going on their schedule, and the very next game, they played in bandaged hands and still won. 
Okay. Frostbite. With frostbite. But one of, and one of their players though uh, developed such bad frostbite that he that he got gangrene, and he had to get sent home. And so uh, the only way to treat gangrene back then was through amputation. But his mom refused to have that happen, so he died. And the newspaper said, the boys played really well in this game where they won with the bandaged hands, despite the loss of their teammate who died from gangrene. And so I put that in the book, Sam, because we don't really recognize that they were popularizing basketball in the far reaches of our country. Mm-hmm. Because those local teams, those local all-white teams, had to, had to develop and be, be at their best in order to even make it entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so it, it elevated them. It pushed them to excellence. And that elevated the game. And we don't, we don't recognize that in terms of the basketball history that we talk about. And we also don't recognize that it was more than a game, right? Like, who would do that? It's unheard of. Mm-hmm. But they did because they had to... That was literally paving the way because if they didn't, then they would have folded. What about the next all-black team that comes up here? They they might not. Ah, they can't take it. Let's not invite them next time. You know. So, so all these teams almost read from the same script, and they were they were they were in unison trying to not only expand the game but also make a living, and you know do right by the by the communities that they represented. So I talk about all that, you know, it's, it's uh, ups and downs, challenges, and, um, uh, but also inspiring, uh, inspiring moments, you know, at, at the end of the day. So thank you for having, having me on here. Black, the Black Fives, the epic story of basketball's forgotten era by Claude Johnson. You can get it wherever you get your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. And the website again is? Black Fives, F-I-V-E-S dot O-R-G. All right, and all the gear is available there. All the gear, sure. everything, yeah. All right, so the the dad caps, all that, all that, yeah. all that. Yeah. See, I got and the information profiles, all that stuff. And I just have to say, it's been really great being on with uh, Cornelius. You know, <laughs> yeah. like this goes way back. You know, and so it's like f- a full circle moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's cool. I appreciate you guys spending the time with me and keep on spreading the gospel of the Black Fives. And proud of you, CJ, and good yeah. luck. In your final season. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us on here today. All right, folks. Thanks for watching another edition of Behind the Uniform. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving nonstop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.